0: For more. It's been, it's been good for me to interact with some of you um, this week as we've been talking about holiness. If you were here on Monday, we, we started in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, and we'll continue on in, in Hebrews in just a moment. Um, for a lot of people, the idea of holiness is simply that it, it's an ideal, it's something that maybe theologians talk about, but it doesn't get out of the world of abstraction. Um, it's, it's a doctrine maybe that nerdy people like myself like to teach you about, um, but some people don't see any real, um, ob- anything observable here. But when we look at scripture, holiness is not simply a doctrine. It's not simply something that we as Wesleyans or we as Christians are supposed to believe in. Holiness is something lived. Holiness is something observable, and I want us to see that today. And the question I want us to ask today is, what exactly then, if holiness is so observable, if it's so lived, if it's so real, if it's, if it's just as real as in our lives as the physical, then what does it look like? What does the holy life look like? What is holiness lived? What are we supposed to see there? Um, there are several things that we'll, we'll go over today as we look in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 14, but Monday we talked about the blood of Christ, and how all of us need purification, and how the first step in walking into holiness is recognizing the fact that I'm not holy by myself. We talked about how all of us are born with a kind of twistedness, and we don't naturally want to follow God's way. We want to do our own thing. There's something about our own way that seems better, that seems safer, that seems more secure than God's way. And we talked about how there's No way to walk in holiness other than the fact that the blood of Christ has to be applied to our lives and cleanse us from the guilt of sin and cleanse us from the power of sin. And we said that there is no sin so toxic, no sin so poisonous, nothing so detrimental that we've done that Jesus Christ can't heal us from. That God is able to cleanse us to the uttermost. But that's only the first half of the message of holiness. Holiness is not just about... Taking something off or removing sin from us, getting rid of the bad stuff, right? Sometimes in our, in our uh, tradition, holiness preaching has been pretty much about that. Getting rid of your sin and then try to do better. No. It's about being made different. It's about God working in us a new disposition, a new orientation, a new attitude of my mind that by his grace I put into action. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Once God has purified us and broken the guilt and the bondage that we are in our sin, what next? What's the next step? So again, I'd like for us to look at Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read 1 through 14. Um, We started Monday reading the first chapter of Hebrews. Now we read the last chapter of Hebrews, 1 through 14. The writer says this, keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. What does holiness look like? How is it lived? You might be expecting me to go immediately into verses 1 through 9 and talk about all these ethical exhortations, right? Holiness looks like doing these things. And that's where we're sometimes tempted to start. We sometimes equate holiness with right doing. Um, Making sure that ethically and morally, all of our ducks are in a row, and then we can call ourselves holy. But I don't want to start there, and you'll see why in a little bit. I want to start with verses 11 through 13. Before we can talk about any kind of do-gooding, before we can talk about reforming our lives, and before we can talk about any kind of social justice that means anything, we have to understand that first and foremost, holiness is about being identified with Christ. Holiness is about, more than anything else, being identified with Christ. Today, the idea of identity is all around us. We have um, uh, in in our politics, um, in our social discourse, on our campuses, so much going into like, who am I? Who are we? What's my identity? And oftentimes, we think of our identity as shaped primarily by our socioeconomic status, um, our race, our gender, our our experiences growing up, who raised us, etc. And all of those things have a really big bearing on who we are. They do matter for our identity. But when it comes to the Christian life, those things are secondary. Our primary identity is in Christ Jesus and Him alone. He's the one who forms my core. He's the one who forms my identity. There's nothing more important as far as who I am than who I am in Christ. When I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And, and that, I think you guys, form such a, a bond because when we are in Christ and we recognize that Christ is our primary identity marker, then that transcends all the other ways that divide us. I remember in, um, well, it was a long time ago now, some years ago, I was on a mission trip in Mexico, and we got there uh, to, to, the, to the place after driving for like 24 hours in a church bus, and it was, yeah, it was, it was rough, and... And the, 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 the missionary said, oh, why don't you just, why don't you preach tomorrow morning in church? I was like, what? You know, I had no, I didn't, pre- didn't prepare anything. Anyway, um, got up the next morning. I, you know, cobbled something together that was barely coherent. and had an interpreter. I took Spanish in high school and college, but now my Spanish is muy terrible. So I had an interpreter. Some of you got that? Good. So I had an interpreter, and... Those dear people at this church, mostly poor, um, were not used to somebody like me coming around and, you know, preaching something that probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. But I remember shaking a guy's hand afterwards. Um, This Mexican male, older than I was, I could tell he was poor. He and I probably didn't have a lot in common. And based on today's identity politics, he and I were in two different worlds, But he looked at me and he grabbed my hand and through an interpreter said, that was beautiful, it was good, all of it. And and I looked at him and I felt his handshake and I saw the beam on his eye and I thought, this man knows Jesus and I have the same Jesus. And I felt a closer kinship with that man in that moment than I do some of my own relatives. That happens when Jesus is our primary identity marker. That's what holiness is about then, you guys. Holiness is not about trying harder. Holiness is not about trying to reform ourselves. Holiness is about Christ-centeredness. But how exactly do we identify then with Jesus? How is it that he becomes our primary identity marker? Well, of course, we have to believe in him and and all the things that we already know. You can even wear your WWJD bracelet if that's your thing. I think the key to identifying with Christ really comes at the end here of verse 13, the last statement. The writer says, bearing the disgrace he bore. You and I identify with Christ when you and I bear the disgrace or the reproach, the shame, that Christ bore. Now, that, that sounds pretty heavy, but what in the world does it mean? Well, in order to know what it means, it might help to know what it meant to the original recipients of this letter. We don't know who wrote this letter. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Um, but we do know that the original recipients, recipients were Jewish Christians. And apparently, they had been, as a lot of early Christians were, struggling as to what to do with their old faith and their old rituals, the way of life that the Jewish people had known for thousands of years in light of their new relationship with Jesus. What's the relationship there? Well, the, the writer to the Hebrews here in these last couple of verses talks about how um, there were two atonements that he's comparing, Okay. He said, there's the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 that all the Jewish people were aware of. And that, of course, is when the high priest would kill the animal and he would take the blood into the most holy place. Now, if you've had an Old Testament class, if you've ever talked about this before, that you know that the most holy place was that central place in the tabernacle where only the high priest could go and only with blood. Um, and no one else was allowed to go there. It was the place where atonement was made for the people. That is, where the sins of the people were purified so that they could be in right relationship with God. And then, after making atonement in the most holy place, they would take those dead animals that they had killed previously, take them outside of the tabernacle, outside of the camp, way far away, and burn them. That place, far removed from the most holy place where their blood was, Outside the camp was the place of uncleanness. It was the place of exclusion. So, the most holy place then, for a Jewish person, represented that which is most sacred and sacrosanct. That place which is safe. The place which is um, legitimate, familiar, right, admirable, respectable. And outside the camp was the place of exclusion. Was the place of disgrace. Was the place of uncleanness. But then the writer says, it's in that very place, outside the city, outside the camp, that Jesus shed his blood for us, making his people holy. Jesus went outside the camp. In other words, the very place of exclusion, the very place that's unclean, is the very place where Jesus Christ made atonement for our sins. And so the writer is telling his hearers. Earlier, earlier throughout the book he had said, the old ways, the old rituals, aren't necessary anymore. They're not needed anymore, okay? Now he's saying you have to leave them behind. In other words, those whom he's speaking to here had a very stark choice to make. They could continue on um, in the safe way, the secure way, the way of the old old rituals, the way that was legitimate, the way that um, was respectable, the way they had always known, the familiar way, the way they could kind of control, or they could go outside the camp the other way, the way that was risky, the way that wasn't respectable, the way that in many uh, eyes of the community was not legitimate, the way that was disgraceful even. And he said, if you go that way, if you go outside the camp to Jesus, bearing the disgrace he bore, then you're probably going to be excluded from some of the same people that you've grown up with. You're probably going to be outcast. You're not going to be able to participate and, and, and um, engage in the same familiarities and safety that you always have. They had a choice to make, a very real legitimate one. Okay, so how in the world does any of that affect us today? How do we take what was said to them and read it into, in such a way that it's, it's applicable to us? Well, we also have a stark choice. You and I are probably not Jewish believers still struggling with whether or not to live according to the old ways or the new ways. That's probably not our situation now. But we are still, no matter where we are in life, we are still called to identify with Christ and surrender everything we have to him no matter the cost. To bear the disgrace he bore means, ultimately, you guys... That we have to die to ourselves, that we die to our plans, that we die to our, um, our, our agendas, and we fully pick up Christ's agenda and follow him no matter the cost. And while we're not necessarily called to make a choice between the tabernacle, the most holy place, literally, and something outside the camp in, in, in terms of ritual impurities, right? we're still called to make a choice. And I don't know what your situation is, okay? I mean, you're, everyone in here has, has a story. You're, you're, you're all dealing with something, different stages of your lives. But I wonder for you if what the most holy place, what, what the camp represented to the Jewish believers at that time, if there is something that for you uh, is, is represented in terms of something you're holding on to, your safe place, that which you're familiar with your plans, Um, what's legitimate to you, what's respectable in the eyes of those around you, and what is your dignity, what is your reputation that you want to continue to hold on to and make your own? Or is there something that Christ is calling you to where you have to leave behind that place of safety, you leave behind that place of security, you leave behind what seems legitimate and respectable? in the eyes of maybe your own family and those who are closest to you in order to bear the disgrace Jesus bore. To leave that behind and to give everything we have to Jesus and allow him to be um, our primary identity marker. I had a student come into my office um, not too long ago and this is just an example who who was majoring, I won't tell you which, which major. Um, she had switched from one major to another, to, 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 to ministry major, because I don't want to make any disparaging comments about the major that she left. But anyway, she, she made the switch knowing that God had called her to ministry, and she said the other major that she was part of, she liked, it was, it was good enough, but one of the main reasons that she was choosing it was because it was safe. There was job security there, it would be a good career, her parents kind of approved of it, that's fine. But when she made the decision to leave the safety and security behind and do something more risky with the disapproval of her parents, something happened within her heart, I'm convinced. She, she, she was living this out. The idea of leaving behind anything that we might still be holding on to, abandoning it, and going to the other side where Christ is, where he can make us everything he wants us to be. And as long as we're holding on to something that Christ doesn't have, he can't make us holy. He can't do all that he wants to within us. So you guys, what I'm saying is there may come a point in our lives where Jesus is going to confront us and say, you know what, you, you can't have it both ways. Okay? You can't ride the fence for very long. The, these Jewish believers could not have one foot in the tabernacle and one foot outside the camp. It's impossible. We too, at some point may be called to surrender everything, everything that we've ever dreamed of, everything that we are, our very identities, to Christ. Because we can't have it both ways. At some point, Jesus may say, I I either need to be Lord of all of you, or I'm not going to be Lord at all. He calls us to the point where we give our entire selves to Him. Where we die to our old way, we die to ourselves, and He takes all. So that's the first part of this, you guys. What does it mean to be holy? What does it look like? It means to be identified with Christ and going with him no matter where that might be. I don't get to decide what I'm going to do with my life. I don't get to decide where I'm going to live. I'm going to leave that up to him because he has purposes and plans that he alone knows how to work out that I don't know anything about. So I'm going to give all of my safety and all of my reputation to him. But then we come to the second thing. And that is when I am identified with Christ, and now we get to verses one through nine. When I'm identified with Christ, I reflect his character. I reflect the very character of the one in whom my identity rests. So holiness is not simply about making sure I do the right thing. But when we talk about ethical exhortations like Hebrews 1 through nine, consist of, it's not just, okay, make sure you do this, follow these rules but it's actually an act of worship. It becomes my delight. Now, I didn't read these passages beforehand, but in, 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 in the passages right before, 13 verse 1, in twelve twenty eight, the writer says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So let us worship God. Now, in the original, there was no verse and chapter break here, Okay? Sometimes in our personal devotions, we might read a chapter and then say, okay, that's the end of the chapter. I'm going to put my Bible away, and then the next day, I'm going to read the next chapter. Well, originally, there were no chapters. It was just all one thing. And so, the idea continues on here. Your act of worship, your act of reverence, reverence before God consists of loving each other, not forgetting hospitality to the stranger, all the things we see here in 1 through 9. So, let me just give you f- um, four points from verses 1 through 9, in terms of how exactly do we reflect the character of Christ. The first thing we see in these first three verses is the idea of love. He talks about, I think this is kind of cool. There are two words here, I, I doubt very, very many of you are Greek scholars, but there are, are two words here that I think are instructive to how exactly we're supposed to love. The first word is Philadelphia. Now you guys probably know what Philadelphia is. I don't know if we have any Eagles fans in here having won the Super Bowl. Anybody who beats the Patriots, I'm, I'm a fan of. Patriots are, that's right. I don't care who they're playing, the Patriots are evil and they, just, and they deserve to be beaten. Um, what does Philadelphia mean? It's the city of brotherly love, yeah. That's a Greek word, phila or philo means to like or to love and then, and then the word means means brother or sister and so it literally means brother love. The next, the next word in here is philoxenia. Have you heard that one before? Probably not. Maybe you haven't heard of philoxenia, but the word xenia, maybe you are more familiar with it from the term xenophobia. You know what xenophobia means, right? Fear or distrust or hatred of the stranger or the outsider. So if philadelphia means brother love, philoxenia means stranger love, loving the stranger. So when the writer is talking about loving each other as an act of worship insofar as I'm identified with Christ and I'm dead to myself, I'm dead to my sin, Christ has has given me his purifying blood, then I love in such a way that, yes, I love my brother. Yes, I give of myself to those who are close to me, but I also love those who are not close to me. I also give of myself freely and live open-handedly to those that I don't really know anything about that I might come upon. Um... The idea here you guys of loving is not something also that's just sentimental. Right? We could we can sometimes feel a certain way towards somebody, but the kind of love that the Bible talks about is a love that's put into action. When God loves us, he doesn't just sort of sit up there in heaven feeling something for us. Okay? We know God loves us because he's acted on our behalf. Because he's made us, because he's interacted with us, because he has sent his son to die for us, because he has sent his holy spirit to be with us. If God's compassion was sometimes like our compassion, we wouldn't even know he exists. God's compassion moves him to action, so much so that he intervenes in our lives into our very the very details of our affairs. We're supposed to love like that. It's easy, perhaps easier, I should say, to. Act on behalf of our brother or sister. It's harder to put our compassionate action for the stranger. We might feel bad for that family who doesn't have anything. We might feel bad for this poor woman over here who's in who has to go to a shelter because she's in an abusive relationship. And then two minutes later, we think, okay, when what time's the game on? You know, uh, what, what's my bracket look like? Um, I got to go eat. Let me go get a smoothie at McConnor's. You know, you know what I mean? Like we 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 we, we have a moment. Where we connect in compassion and then we go about our own business not doing anything about it. Now listen, you and I, no matter how close to Jesus we are, you and I can't love to the exact same degree that God loves. God loves in his His absolute holiness and his absolute perfection. We can't love to the degree that God loves. But we can love in the same way that God loves. We can love in the manner in which God manifests his love. It means we give of ourselves no matter the cost. I said the other day, I think I said this on Monday. Sometimes I can't remember what I said. It just sort of bleeds into all these different things from classes or whatever else. But one of the ways that God shows his love to all of us is in an unself-interested way. When Jesus is teaching um, Sermon on the Mount, remember he makes that statement in Matthew 5 that God sends his rain upon the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on the, on the righteous and the unrighteous. Meaning, God lovingly gives His benefits and pours out His generosity even to those who will not reciprocate. Even to those He knows. He'll get nothing in return. But because God is love, He pours out His love anyway. Some way, somehow, that's the way we're supposed to love. Yes, brotherly love, Philadelphia. But stranger love, Philoxenia. Loving those who weren't like us. Loving those who we have nothing in common with. And putting our compassion, putting our real love into action. Doing something about it. Not just saying, well, I really feel bad for them. But doing something about it. Love, you guys. That's, that's one of the ways in which we live out Christ's character. And then here's something else. Where is this at? Oh, yeah, verse 4. We should probably have a whole chapel series on this. But it's the idea of purity. If I'm identified with Christ... And therefore, I'm reflecting his character in this life of holiness. I'm going to live a life of love, self-giving, sacrificial love, no matter who it is, unself-interestedly. But I'm also going to live a life of purity, sexual purity. Okay? Now, sometimes when we talk about sexual purity as Christians, we like, start wringing our hands. We're like, oh, this feels uncomfortable. Okay? It shouldn't feel uncomfortable. Sex is one of the gifts that God has given us from the beginning. It's something to be celebrated. I'm glad that God gave us this. Um, and it's not just for the, the obvious reasons, but it's one of the highest goods because we see, we see in, in sex, when it, is, when it is done the way God intended, in a covenant of marriage between one man and one woman, we see here in lots of things, but we see a picture of redemption take place, where the two become one flesh in love where they represent the two halves of humanity that were estranged from one another in the garden at the fall, brought back together in union in loving relationship, loving one another in some way, like God loves in himself. A self-giving unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is in a very dim way, but nonetheless a way reflected in the marital union between a man and a woman, as they give themselves to one another fully and comprehensively. There's so much, man, too many of you guys, I'm sure, if you went to youth group, you grew up thinking about sex in terms of what I can't do. Okay, I told some of you this, in, uh, some t- I don't know, maybe, Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell it, um, in some of my classes. My brother, who I think is here today, professor at Northwest Nazarene, uh, came to see me and he was telling me one time about somebody he knew, I think growing up in this kind of an environment, where, you know, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad, and all of a sudden you get married and you're like, well, oh, no. now it's, you know, you can do whatever you want, right? Um, so this, this, this girl and this guy get married, and um, they have the ceremony, they have the wedding cake and all that, they go back to the hotel, whatever else, and instead of celebrating um, their marriage the way God intended, she was afraid and went into the bathroom, locked herself in, and would not come out until he promised nothing would happen. Okay? They ended up spending the night playing Bible Pictionary. Okay? <laughs> now that, now now listen, that is one of the effects of bad Christian teaching about sex. I mean, we, we can laugh, it's yeah, kind of funny, but that's one of the effects of a skewed teaching about sex. Sex is a beautiful thing, but one of the things that means that before I come to that place where I enter into the covenant of marriage, I keep myself pure. Okay? I know what culture tells us. I know how we feel. I was your age once too. But being identified with Christ and reflecting his character means but I'm going to follow God's ways instead of my own sensations. But I'm going to follow God's ways when it comes to purity rather than what culture tells me I'm allowed to do. Means that what God says is beautiful and is to be used in a a particular way so that it remains beautiful. I'm going to affirm in all the different ways in which that beauty can be deformed and all the ways that we can sin sexually, everything that God says is out of bounds, and everything that God says is sinful, I'm going to agree with that. Okay? It may mean that you're called a prude. It may mean that you're not liberated. That okay? you're still under you know, the, the, the oppressive mores of the 50s. Some people may call you bigoted or hateful. But what God says is what we have to live out. And His way is beautiful if we give it a chance i got to move on here. Something else we see. Oh, I really have to move on here. Something else we see. I did not realize, I only have three minutes left. Contentment. What is the time gone? Contentment. This idea of greed. You guys, really quickly, we recognize that we don't, when I'm identified with Christ, when I've given him everything, when he's the one who forms my very identity and I'm reflecting his character, that I don't love the things that the world loves and I don't love the way that the world loves and I don't love um, the value systems that the world has. I go by a different set of values. And then finally, 7 through 9, faithful obedience. Not just respecting my leaders and looking at my elders, etc., and, and my teachers. But in verse 9, he says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. One of the, one of the ways in which we're identified with Christ and we reflect Christ's character is to not be carried away every time we hear something different that might seem in our culture respectable, right, wise, conventional. It means that we'll have to stand our ground at times when it's not always easy to stand our ground. But we continue to walk with Jesus because we recognize that whatever he says is the way of life and the way of peace. And my own understanding will fade, and cultural mores will change, and different standards will come and go, but God's way never fades. I was going to say one more thing too, Um, and and I can only say it very briefly. The way of holiness is being identified with Christ. The way of holiness is reflecting Christ's character. But let me say one more thing. I read verse 14, didn't really talk about it much. The way of holiness is hopeful. We're looking for an enduring city, all that stuff. Let me just say this. Um, Holiness people, those of us who believe that God can transform us and make us everything he wants us to be in this life, should not be dour people, should not be um, the kind of people who don't want to have any fun. We are people who are hopeful because we live as though Jesus Christ really is in charge and we live as though Jesus Christ really is going to keep his promises to us. The main point, then, takeaway, you guys, of this when it comes to holiness is that we have to die to ourselves and allow God to form something new within us, a conformity to his character that will change everything if we just let him. Let's pray. Lord, I believe that you are calling us to a different way of life, a way that's holy and a way that isn't, um, isn't natural to us. But we're thankful, Lord God, for what you've called us to and we pray that you would help us. In the same way that these early Christians had to make a decision, Help us to make the decision between bearing the disgrace you bore or the safe way, the way that everyone would respect. Help us to bear your disgrace, to humble ourselves, to die to ourselves, and to be all that you want us to be. Help us to carry that with us, we pray, and to love like you called us to love. In Christ's name, amen.